In our world, there's an abundance of resources, but there's also an abundance of waste. We see that in our country. We have so much, yet we waste so much. And according to the United States, uh, uh, in the United States, you have the Washington Post, and according to the Washington Post, you have uh, $146 billion every single year worth of food that's wasted, just thrown in the garbage, left to rot. Just to give you an idea of how big of a number that is, $330 billion could end world hunger once and for all. But we waste about half as much as it costs for, to end world hunger. That's a big price. Now, I'm guilty of wasting things too. And if you know me and you spent any time with me, you know that whenever I go out to eat, I never finish my food. And that's not because I'm weird, but that's because in case there's a zombie apocalypse, you don't want to have a full stomach because then you're not going to be able to run because you get a stomach cramp and it's bad. It's just rationality. But I waste a lot of things. I waste my food. You know, I buy clothes I don't need. And you always buy more supplies than you need. And you wind up throwing it into the garbage. And I think we're more comfortable about wasting things that we think are common, are cheap, easy to access. And we're less comfortable about wasting things that we view as rare, as expensive. As an example, let's say that you're going to McDonald's and you're ordering those chicken McNuggets, which aren't really chicken, I guess. It's like, it's red paste and, you know, whatever. It nurtures you in some form. And you buy the chicken nuggets and you have one left. You're more likely to waste that chicken nugget, throw in the garbage. Why? Because it's common, it's cheap. But if I'm cleaning my room and I find a love letter addressed to Alan Kahn, that is rare. That does not happen very often. And so you would treasure that. You'd, you'd frame it, even if you don't care about the girl and she's moved away and, and whatever. Not that I care anymore. But it's rare, so you hold it of value. And the real problem is not that we don't value food. That's not the problem with world hunger. It's not that we don't value food. It's that a world that has lost sight of God does not view humanity as rare and expensive. A world that has lost sight of God, who gives purpose and meaning to every single person, has lost sight of the fact that every single human is valuable in the sight of God because you take him out of the picture. Let's see if you can guess who wrote the following quote. Since we spend so much money on the blind, deaf, mute, feeble-minded, feeble-minded and epileptic, our eyes should be opened to the terrific cost to the community of this dead weight of human waste. Who said that? Raise your hand. What do you think? No, definitely not. Who would say such a terrible quote? that they would say something like epileptics, they would say mute, blind, deaf people are dead weight of human waste. It's not, it's not Hitler. No, it's not Teddy Roosevelt. Come on, guys. You're in high school. Yes. No. Put your hands down. It was the founder of Planned Parenthood. Margaret Sanger. Yes. The same person who fought for abortion 
said that following quote. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that people like eminent philosopher of ethics at Princeton University, people like Peter Singer, believes that it's not enough to be a human to be worthy of life. You have to possess certain characteristics. He has a very interesting view about abortion. He doesn't argue that it's a life because he says it is a human life. But he asks, what kind of characteristics should a human have in order, in order to be worthy of life? Kind of a warped view. But all of a sudden, if you think about it, people today are viewing human life as common and cheap. And because of that, it's not enough to just be a human. You have to possess certain characteristics in order to be viewed as valuable in your world. Think about it this way. How many people love themselves for who they are? No. In fact, there's a statistic out there that says 99% of women would change something about themselves if they could. It's true. At least that's what the stats say. And so in our day, we're searching for things to make us feel valuable, rare, and expensive. You know, when I was in high school, which wasn't too long ago, I'll admit, but when I was in high school, if I had a good voice or if I thought I had a good voice, I could compare myself with all my friends in the high school or whatever. But you guys, if you think you have an ability, if you think that you're good at music, you think that you're good at singing or a sport, now you're comparing yourself to every YouTube star, every person on social media, thousands of other people that you've never even met. And because you don't feel like you measure up, all of a sudden you have this feeling of inadequacy. So we're always competing with one another and envious of others' success. When someone says to you, wasn't that band awesome? You'll be like, well, yeah, no, it wasn't really that awesome. I mean, psh, I could play that in my sleep. I mean, whatever. Or if, if someone says to you, isn't she so talented? I don't know. It just didn't really move me. I just, I don't, I don't really like that style of music anyway. Because we'll be envious of other people's success. And we want to push other people down so that we don't feel like waste. So that we don't feel common. We don't feel cheap. And what we see in our universe is that we want our lives to have meaning. Every single person on this earth wants three things, has three desires. The desire to create, the desire to be delivered, and the desire for answers. The desire to create, the desire to be delivered, and the desire for answers. Let me give you some examples. Everyone has the desire to create, and that's what you see on the news when you watch Miley Cyrus do all these outrageous things. Why? Because she wants to create something that will be remembered. People do outlandish things to be respected by other people, to be loved by someone else. I'll do anything for you as long as you love me. And people write songs and, and stay up waking hours into the morning to be loved, to create something that no one has done before. You'll see graffiti all over New York City. Why? Because people want to put up a label of themselves, something that lasts. People also want to be delivered from suffering. People want to be delivered. No one wants to needlessly suffer. And now a lot of people will suffer for a lot of things. Like if you're in sports, you'll, uh, maybe it's football and you're training and you, you'll cut weight and you'll do all these things You'll suffer for a greater purpose, but no one in the world will suffer needlessly, not even evil people. In fact, that's why people commit suicide and, and take their lives. It's because they no longer want to suffer 
and they would even rather die than live a life of suffering. But if you think about it, if we're just evolved, if we're just coming from the apes, all this world has no meaning, no purpose, then why does it matter if we suffer or not? It's just survival of the fittest. You should have been stronger. But there seems something wrong about the fact that people suffer. There seems something wrong about pushing other people down so that you are lifted up. And lastly, people want answers about the real questions in life. No one wants to walk around and act as if there was no meaning to life. People want to know, if I place my trust in this person, will they betray me? If I tell this person this secret, will they go behind my back and gossip about me? People want answers. What is the best way to live my life? No one wants to live a life of confusion. Where do these desires come from? That's the real question. Where do we even get these desires? Because really, if our life has no purpose, if we're just evolved out of nothing, then why should we even care about these questions? And you might ask me, well, what do you mean, where did it come from? Maybe it just happened. Well, if you think about it, every effect has a cause. Every pile of books has a bottom book. Every, every set of series of events had a beginning. So our desires themselves can be traced back to a source. And also, not just how, but the why. Why do we have these desires? If we have these desires, certainly they should be fulfilled. Right? If I have a desire for something, there should be something that fills that desire. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is a such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is a such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Ladies and gentlemen, there is someone who is made to fill that hole. It's not a relationship that's a human relationship, but it's a God relationship. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for you. He cares about you so much that he entered this world so that you wouldn't have to live a life of meaninglessness and purposelessness. There's a God that loves you, and that's what he came to do. He came to give us meaning. Look at verse 1 of John chapter 1 with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So this book, the book of John, is written to a bunch of Greek people. It was written in Greek. And so this word, word, is the Greek word logos. And so he is writing to Greek philosophers of his day, and everyone knew these Greek, Grecian people, if that's even a word, they understood this, the logos, to be the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing universe. They understood that idea very well, the, the person that designed the universe and intentioned everything. And John points to the logos and gives it a new meaning based on what you see in the Bible. He says, you all know this concept of a designer, of a planner. That planner is God. And let me give it a new meaning and tell you what that designer is all about. 
So he gives that word a new meaning based on what the word does in the Old Testament. And what does the word do in the Old Testament? It creates, it delivers, and it reveals. And that's what John wants to tell you tonight. It creates, delivers, and reveals. Whenever you see in uh, the Bible, the word taking action is one of those three things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do that? He said, let there be light. It was the word. When he wanted to deliver the people, what happened? The word of the Lord came to Moses. And Moses said, let my people go. It delivers them from sin, from things, from Egypt. It also gives them answers. The word of the Lord came to David or it came to a certain person and gave them revelation. It helped them to clear that confusion that surrounded them and told them what truth was. Because only Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself is truth. So when we don't have these desires filled, we become shrouded by three types of darkness. You see, only Jesus can fill that gap to create and to be delivered and to reveal. Only Jesus can do those three things. And when we don't have those three things, this is what happens. The opposite of creation is destruction, death. The opposite, of bond, uh, the opposite of deliverance is bondage and sin. The opposite of knowledge is confusion. There's only one person that can solve the problem of death. No matter who you trust in, only one person died and rose again for your sins, for your sake. And that was Jesus Christ. There's only one person who can break the bondage of sin because there's only one person who was sinless. His name is Jesus Christ. And finally... There's only one person who can give you the true revelation and tell you the truth, and that is Jesus, who is the truth. And when we don't have these things, we're confused, we die, and we're trapped in our sins. But you see, darkness is a lack of light. No matter how dark you feel, how confused you feel, how sick you are, how trapped in sin you are, only light can cast out the darkness. And in verse 5, that's what it says. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The literal translation of that being, darkness cannot overcome light. It's literally impossible. Why? Because darkness is a lack of light. Nothing else will solve the darkness. You might find a lot of things in this world to try to fill that gap, to fill that hole. Only light can cast out the darkness in your life. Only Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So in this passage, what we see is the word doing those three things, creating, delivering, and revealing. And he lays it out. First of all, the word creates. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God himself has a plan for you. It doesn't matter how lost you feel, how useless you feel, because God died for you because he saw worth in you. He had a plan that you should walk in his ways. You don't have to worry about being the waste of society because no matter how useless you feel or how messed up you are, there is a perfect God that created this world who still has a use for you. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. You might say, but Alan, how can you say that God is working? Look at the state of the world. Look at that typhoon that happened in the Philippines. How is it possible that God will use me? 
How is it possible that God can redeem the darkness? Tozer has this one quote. He says, just because the, the man's work table looks cluttered and as if everything is out of place does not mean in his mind there is not order and purpose. In the same regard, I am not going to accuse God of creating a lot of unnecessary things that have no purpose in God's total scheme of things just because I don't understand them. Listen very carefully. Everyone look up here. Since God is a perfect artist, no part is without purpose. Because God is the perfect artist who created the heavens, he created the seas, everything in them. There is no part of the universe that does not have a purpose. There is no organ in your body that does not have a purpose. God intended every single one of them for a purpose. Now, sin may distort some things, but God had an intended design for no matter what it was, whether it's a black hole in the universe, whether it's a star, a galaxy, or any fragment or part of your life. Without him, nothing was made that was made. All is intended, all was designed. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Every single thing. You don't feel beautiful, everything has its time. And he wants to make you beautiful. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You see, only he knows your purpose. You might try to figure out what you want to be, like I did. I said, well, maybe I'll be a musician. Maybe I'll be an actor or a photographer. I had a lot of different plans, but only God knew the intended purpose for my life. And that's for me to be right here with you guys here tonight. It's not by coincidence that you're here. God drew you here for a purpose. And that's to let you know that he loves you. The art that people make shows what the artist is like. When you look at the universe, it shows what our God is like. And if God has an intention for every part of the universe, he has an intention for you, no matter how insignificant you feel. If you look at the Sistine Chapel, right? Michelangelo designed that Sistine Chapel. You look at it, it's beautiful, but every single part of the painting had a purpose. There was no accident. It's not like he just took his paintbrush and was like, yeah, I'm going to do something random over here. But every part had a purpose and reveals a little bit about what the artist is like. By looking at that painting, we can tell what Michelangelo was like. So do you want to know how mankind was created? In case you don't know, maybe you don't have a Bible background. Man was created by God breathing into dust. Now, what use do people have for dust? We just want to get out of the house. We'll just, you know, does anyone take dust and like, I'm going to make a dust collection? No, because it's literally useless. But what did God do? He breathed into the dust and formed life. God still breathes life into the insignificant. Darkness cannot overcome it. It doesn't matter how insignificant you feel or what limitation you think you have. You say, I'm not beautiful. I'm not talented. You can stay in the dark. But if you let there be light, God will bring, breathe life into every part of your life. That's what he came to do, to shine light into a dark world. He came to create, create purpose, create meaning for you. Secondly, the word delivers. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. 
That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. What is he talking about here? Why does he say to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe? Why do people have to believe? Well, that's because this world is full of darkness, full of death. I had a friend in high school who suddenly passed away because of a stroke. She went to bed, never woke up. I didn't understand it at the time. And you know what? There is something wrong about death. I think the fact that people cry at funerals shows us that death was never meant to be the end of the story. We were never really supposed to just live and die. But if it's just evolution, if it's just meaningless and purposeless and it's just an accident, then why do we care so much when people pass on? It's because it was never meant to be the end of the story. And ladies and gentlemen, it isn't the end of the story because Jesus died at the grave, but he also rose again. He came to bring, breathe life and light into the dark world. But you might ask, why do these terrible things still happen? Why is it that people still die? Why is it that we're still confused, that we're still in sin? People still hurt us. Listen very carefully. Everything is wrong until Jesus sets it right. Everything is wrong until Jesus sets it right. Tozer once said that. If you take a bunch of puzzle pieces, you get it from the store, you, you just dump it on the floor, and it's all mixed all over the place, it's jumbled. You don't look at that puzzle mess and say, well, this is just impossible. This is complete nonsense. Why? Because the mess that we make points to an ideal order. The pain, the suffering that we experience in the world points to an order, an intended design, a God that had a perfect way, but we deviated from it. And God wants to bring order from the chaos. He's the great physician who came into a sick world. He is the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. But you see, the problem is that not everyone accepts the light. You can cast light as much as you want, but not everyone wants to come to the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil in the dark and they were exposed and they felt guilty. Well, I, you know, I don't really want to follow the Lord yet because I'm, you know, I like drinking, I like partying, I like smoking. I'm not ready to give up those things. But realize when you look at the Bible, it's not like God says no for, for no reason. In fact, every time God says no to something, it's because he's already said yes to something else. He has the better way. He has the better purpose, the better design. If you take one commandment from the Bible and just obeyed it, every single person obeyed it in the Bible, not to have sex before marriage. Sounds ridiculous, right? Like, why wouldn't you have sex before marriage? Why don't you experiment before you get married? If everyone just obeyed that one command, you'd have no STDs, no unwanted pregnancies, no abortions. And you have to ask yourself, would a world that didn't have those things be better or worse off than the world that we have now? Obviously, I find it very hard for someone not to agree with that. You see, God has the, the great order, the intended order, but some tragically reject this light. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Many of you, as it's Christmas time coming up very soon, woot woot, we have that movie that plays every single year. What is that movie? Close. <laughs> it is Christmas story, but 
It's a wonderful life. Every single year. Now you remember, George told the angel, I wish I had never been born. And what happened? He came to his family and his family did not recognize him. You realize that Jesus came into this world? He made us. He made everything that is in this world and above this world. And yet his own did not receive him. He came into the world as a baby in a manger. And people did not even realize at the time that hope was right around the corner. You may be sitting here right, right now in the seat, not realizing that hope is available to you tonight. You may have come here just because a friend invited you and not really realizing why you're here, but God had an intended purpose, and that's to bring light into your world. Maybe you've lost hope. In fact, back when the Emancipation Proclamation was given forth back in the day, there were slaves that were free but walking around still like slaves because it was so hard to break that habit because they have lived so long like a slave. They didn't know what it was like to be free. Maybe you're in the same place. You've been in darkness so long that you just figure that you're without hope. There's no way that I can ever get out of this. There's no way I can ever be free from my addiction. No way I'll ever be freed from these things that, that people say to me and people put these labels on me and I'll never be free from them. But God has come to set you free, to give you hope. All you have to do is receive him. That's what verse 12 says. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those that believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's the thing that you can place your confidence in right now. You are not an afterthought to God. You were a forethought. Skip Heitzig once said that. You're not an afterthought. You are a forethought to God. In other words, he thought of you before the world was created. You were part of his intended design. He had a plan for you to walk in so that you would find your true meaning, true purpose, and find your satisfaction, not in the world, but in him. It's not like God thought you of it as, as an accident or a mistake, but you were intended to be a part of this world. And so as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. Not just friends, not just distant relatives, not just servants, but his own very loved children to those that believed in his name. You might say, though, but Alan, you don't understand. Every day I'm teased. Every day my family just rejects me. My friends don't love me. You don't know how hard my life is. You don't know how difficult circumstances in my life are, or how addicted I am to this one thing or that thing. I'm actually going to go one step further. I'm going to say yes and amen to what you just said. But I'm going to say that everything is wrong until Jesus sets it right. You may be struggling. You may be hurting right now. You may be hurting so bad, but there is a God that loves you and has an intended design for you. It doesn't matter how deep you are in your sin. The Bible promises to his children, to as many as receive him. Check this out. Revelation chapter 21. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. You see, there's only one God that can take away the pain. His name was Jesus Christ. Put your faith in the one who promises to deliver. Only Jesus can do that.
but I know it's a scary thing. What is God like? Can I really trust this God? I can't place my trust in someone that I don't really know. That's why the, you do the trust fall thing, and unless you know the person, you won't want to fall into that person's arms. How can we really know if God is trustworthy? Well, he proves it. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. There's an ancient Hindu illustration of what God is like. Where there's three blind guys and they're going over to the, the elephant and they feel the trunk and said, oh, God is like a tree. And they feel the tail, oh, God is like a snake. And they're all coming up with different opinions saying, we can't really know what God is truly like because we're all in the dark. There's one problem with that illustration. What is it? It's the narrator, the one who sees everything. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him, Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see, Jesus was the one who told us what God is like. And he came down to this earth, not just figuratively, but historically, he has come down to our, to our earth 2,000 years ago and died on a cross and rose again so that we could know what God is like. That is why it's so important not to make a graven image in the Bible, by the way. That's why uh, the Israelites were commanded not to make a graven image. It's because any image you would make that's not Jesus is not the image of God. It's not his logo. Just as a logo represents a company, there's only one logo for a company until they change it. That represents the vastness of the company. Jesus is the only logo. And so what the Israelites did is, as uh, Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, they're like, well, we want to know what our God looks like. Let's make him look like a cow. All right, golden calf. And then they just go crazy. And Moses is like, a cow? He could have made a dragon or something, but it's a cow. Come on, guys. And you see, there's only one image of the invisible God, and that was Jesus Christ. No other image will do. You ever get so used to how someone looks, and then they change their look, and it's just kind of like weird. You don't really know who they are. My dad's had a beard for forever, and those of you that don't know me, my dad's this tall Jewish guy. I know, we're related, just so you know, I'm not adopted. But he had a beard for so long that I remember when we were four years old, he shaved his beard off, and I was crying for days. I thought a stranger was in my house. I was like, who's this person loving on my mom? Who is this? I'm just going crazy because I couldn't identify him because I identified my dad with beard. <laughs> but thirdly, the word reveals, reveals what God is like. Many of us have an idea of what God is like, but form our opinion of him based on what other people say. So for instance, if you hear a bad movie review by your friends, oh, it's a terrible movie, don't see it, it's just so dumb, you figure it's a bad movie. And so some people, by hearing what your friends say about God and and their experiences, you figure that he must be a bad God. If you hear mean things about God and how could God allow this suffering, you figure it must be true. But don't look at what people say about God. 
Don't look at what people say when they say God hates gays, God's, God hates you. There is only one image of the invisible God, and that is Christ Jesus. What did he look like? He looked like a man who died on the cross, bleeding, wounded for our transgressions, and by his stripes we are healed. There is no other image that will do. An image that loves you so much that he would come into the world not to live for himself, but to live so that he could die for your sake. He took the pain and the punishment, every part of the suffering that you would ever have to endure on himself so that we could live with him and be his children. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. People said to Jesus, show us the Father. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The God of the universe takes such an interest in you that he actually became one of us. How unbelievable is that? Some of you know this story about me, but years ago, I once had a celebrity that um, was interested in me. God knows why. But, I mean, for like five minutes, it wasn't like a long thing that was going on. But I went kind of nuts for a long time, you know, because I messed it up and I screwed up the relationship. It wasn't going to work out. That messed me up for a long time. Why? And some of us have celebrity crushes and they're not actually serious or anything like that. But the reason why it gets us so giddy when they tweet us or tweet reply us or whatever is because that someone famous takes interest in you. Someone sees you amongst everyone else and all of a sudden you're not just a common person, you're rare, you're expensive, you're valuable. But you see, the most famous person in all of the universe takes interest in you, sees value in you. There's no other person like you. You're unique to God. No one else can fulfill your calling. No one else is designed or made like you. The psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and God loves you. In conclusion tonight, what do you think about Jesus? You see, because what you think about Jesus reveals not only who Jesus is, but reveals who we are. You can't know yourself until you know God. Because unless you know God, you won't know why you're made. You're always going to guess, like, I guess I'm made to do this. I guess I'm born to do this. And I guess I'm supposed to do this with my life. Always guessing, always changing your careers, always changing your hobbies, because you don't know why you were made. Only God knows that purpose. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You won't know who you are until you know your maker. You'll be searching for fulfillment, you'll be searching for purpose and meaning, but it's only found in Jesus. And that hope is readily available to you if you look to him. Now you might say to me, but I always seem to wander away. Why is that? If God is real, why is it that I just, I come to church and then I have this, you know, I go on a retreat or whatever. I have this mountaintop experience, but I always seem to wander away. Why is that? If God is real, why would he let me do that? That's because we have not yet fully seen him. It's because we have not yet fully seen him. That's what verse 18 says. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. If you've ever been in love 
and you can't stop talking to that person that you're interested in. It's not enough to just text them, right? It's not enough to just FaceTime them or Skype them. Because what if you're dating someone and you're just like, I texted you, why do I have to see you? Why do I have to hang out with you? We were texting all day. You see, because it's not enough to just distantly text someone or whatever, but you want to see them face to face. And in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, it says, now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. Another translation says it by now we see it in a glass darkly. They would have these mirrors that were so dim back in the day because they were made of silver. They couldn't actually see their face. But one day, he says, we will see face to face and know just as I am known. The reason why we are prone to wander is because we have not yet fully experienced God. But he is making that experience readily available to you today. So for those of you that have never experienced God, he wants to call you out, to his marvel out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, I don't know if I fully believe this yet. That's okay. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the person of your faith. It's whom you have believed. Who are you putting your trust in? And there's only one person that can create meaning for your life, only one person who can deliver you from sin, and only one person who gives you the answers you need because there's only one person who's the truth. So you might say today, I don't really know if I, I fully get this yet. I don't really know if I understand this yet. And that's okay. But put your trust in the one who promises to be there for you, to deliver you out of everything that you suffer with. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now.